Okay, I, I think we're ready to start. It's very nice to um, welcome Austin Minerva. Um, paper to the Aristotelian Society this week. He completed his PhD in Harvard in 2002. He's currently a professor of philosophy at Birkbeck, having previously held positions at Bristol, Oxford, and Oslo. His main research interests are in the philosophy of logic and philosophy of mathematics, uh, metaphysics, and the philosophy of language. Um, he's particularly, <coughs> particularly interested in questions about uh, ontology and reference, and particularly in connection with abstract objects. And he's also interested in the nature of necessity and of our knowledge of necessary truths. He's published a number of papers on these topics in leading journals, um, and he's currently writing a book defending a, broad, a broadly Fraguer approach to the philosophy of mathematics. Um, he's going to talk to us today on the topic of reference by abstraction. Thanks for the introduction and, and the invitation. And, and my topic is, as, as mentioned, uh, reference by abstraction, or one might have said reference by, uh, by means of criteria of identity. Uh, uh, that comes to uh, much the same thing. And the, the place to go, of course, for this idea that I'm interested in uh, is Frege, and more specifically, the, the following passage from uh, Frege's uh, Gondlagen. Uh, so if for us the symbol A is to denote an object, then we must have a criterion which determines in every case whether B is the same as A, even if not always within our power to apply this criterion. Right? So this has received a lot of attention in the uh, literature, and uh, there are many hard exegetical issues surrounding this. But I think the basic idea should be tolerably clear. So somehow criteria of identity have something to do with our reference to objects. So to refer to an object is somehow to draw on an ability to uh, distinguish the referent from other objects, uh, to re-identify the referent in other situations. And one way of getting a, a sense of what Frege has in mind here is by uh, uh, means of an example from, uh, from Quine, uh, where Quine uh, says that imagine you're standing at the bank of a river uh, watching all the water floating by. Uh, so what's required of you in that case for you to refer to the river specifically as opposed to uh, uh, a particular segment of the river or all the water in the river or a time slice of all that water or all the other possible objects you might have been referring to? And Quine's answer then is that uh, you must at least implicitly be operating with the criterion of identity. Uh, so something that allows you to tell when two sightings of water are really sightings of one and the same river. Uh, another example is from uh, Frege himself uh, around uh, this bit of the Gondlagen uh, uh, that I gave the quote from. Uh, so what's required for you to refer to uh, directions, Frege asks, uh, and then gives the answer that, well, uh, you must at least be able to tell when two directions given to you by means or presented to you by means of two uh, lines, whose directions they are, when these are identical. And you could do that, Frege says, by means of the uh, criterion of identity that I put up on, on the slide. So in all these cases, uh, it seems that your act of referring is somehow guided by and, and subject to uh, uh, criteria of identity. And this is a nice idea, as Frank appreciates and, and other people have appreciated, uh, in part because of its extreme generality. So criteria of identity, uh, that's a very, very general notion. So all kinds of objects, abstract and concrete, may have criteria of identity. So we've seen an example of, of the criterion of identity for abstract objects, and you're all familiar with uh, uh, purported such criteria for concrete objects. So the thought goes, if one could have an account of reference that somehow has the notion of a criterion of identity at its heart, then maybe that account of reference would inherit this extreme generality from the notion of a criterion of identity. right? And that would be nice since there appears to be such a thing as reference to abstract objects, as just picking up any newspaper would indicate uh, where there's all kinds of talk about uh, 
there are these kinds of abstract objects. So uh, my example in this talk will be letters uh, or letter types, which is an, an abstract object that we refer to all over the place, uh, all the time. Uh, so it would be nice to have an account of reference that doesn't shut down that possibility of reference to abstract objects at the very outset, but gives that idea a, a fair hearing, or that possibility a, a fair hearing. So that's the attraction of, of this kind of a approach. And a lot of people have been motivated by this. Uh, it has generated a lot of enthusiasm. But and although a lot of good work has been done, I don't think any satisfactory development of, of this Fregean idea has yet been developed. So what, what I'm going to attempt to do is to uh, uh, provide a precise model of this phenomenon that Frege is calling to, uh, to our attention. The phenomenon, that is, of, of reference somehow having something to do with criteria of identity and the possibility of having an account of reference uh, with this notion at its heart. Uh, so let me tell you a bit more what I mean by, by this talk about a precise model of the, the phenomenon. Uh, so one aspect of it is that uh, I will be inspired by Frege for sure, but my concerns will not be primarily exegetical ones. Right? So I'm not going to be that concerned about whether what I say would, would be something that Frege himself would agree with. Uh, my primary concern is uh, using Fregean ideas to develop an account of reference and to reference to abstract objects uh, specifically. Secondly, I'm after a model, not an account that fits all of the cases. So our practices of referring to, to objects are immensely rich and varied, uh, very, very complex. So I think it's totally unrealistic to, uh, to aim for an account that, that fully matches all of that richness and complexity. What I want is a simplified model. So I'm going to make a lot of uh, different idealizations, uh, and really just with the aim of, of getting a model up and running of, of how this phenomenon of reference to abstract objects could come about. Uh, and if that turns out to be a successful model, one could, of course, later on go on and, and try to adapt it to, uh, to our rich practices. Um, thirdly, uh, and this is the, the matter about precision. Uh, so talking to some people before the talk got, uh, got started, uh, I realized that a lot of people have noticed the uh, mathematical aspects of, of this and, and been sl slightly concerned. Uh, this is where the, the precision comes in. So this is material that has a lot of technical content. Uh, it lends itself very naturally to a technical uh, exposition. Uh, but really, the, the question is a philosophical one, and, and the proposed account and, and, and answer will be very philosophical ones. Uh, but I want the precision there, and specifically the mathematical precision, in order to, uh, to really impose upon myself and the project a certain, certain kind of rigor. So when things can be made precise, I think one ought to, uh, to make them precise. So this is not because I'm under any kind of illusion that uh, uh, the mathematical aspects of this will, will do philosophical work in and of themselves. So concerning that, I think Kripke was exactly right that uh, there is no mathematical substitute for, for philosophy. Uh, so uh, the real philosophy will, will have to be done. But uh, uh, the precision is there uh, to, to make things rigorous. So, all right. Uh, so the way I'm going to set this up is by describing to you a simple community that starts using one language which they use to uh, talk about all kinds of, of uh, physical objects, uh, including then uh, 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 letter tokens, or what I'm going to call inscriptions, henceforth. Uh, and this will be an interpreted language. So they, uh, they speak it, and they do so in a way that, uh, that makes it the case that that language has a correct interpretation, which I'm going to assume that all the uh, disputing parties agree on. So that's not where the dispute lies. Uh, 
The dispute lies concerning reference to abstract objects. So I'll describe an extension of this basic language, which also has vocabulary for talking about uh, uh, what I'm going to call letters or letter types, but henceforth just letters. Uh, and this extended language will be uh, one that doesn't have an interpretation. We're going to be looking at different interpretations it, uh, it may have. And uh, it will be described instead in terms of uh, use facts. So I'll lay out for you how this language is used. And I'm going to uh, lay that out, that out in such a way that it, it becomes pretty clear that the language is used just as if people are talking about uh, letters, i.e. abstract letter types. Uh, and then the question arises, of course, of, of whether uh, this language or the speakers of the language really refer to, uh, to letters and thus abstract objects. And here, different considerations pull in different directions. Right? Since the use facts are stated solely in terms of uh, concrete uh, things and concrete going on. So, so that makes one think that you shouldn't possibly ascribe to this language any kind of reference to, uh, to abstract objects. But then, then, the, then on the other hand, the language is used by the description of it precisely as if uh, there is reference to, uh, to abstract letter types. Right? So one may want to take that at face value and say that yes, there is reference to, uh, to abstract letters. Uh, so that will be the uh, dilemma that I'll come back to a couple of, uh, couple of times. Uh, and what I will, will argue then is that um, uh, the language does in fact refer to letters, so to abstract objects, uh, but that these objects are in some sense metaphysically lightweight. I may even, uh, before I get to the end, uh, use the word uh, linguistically constituted. Uh, so... Uh, there's something lightweight uh, about them, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you what I mean by, by that in due course. Uh, so here's the, uh, uh, how it's going to proceed. And I don't expect you to take all of this in now, but put it up here just so you could refer back to it as we go along and check off, so to speak, uh, uh, item by item, what I do. Mm -hmm. So first, I'll lay out the two languages that I've, I've already told you about. Then I will present two interpretations of the language, two semantic interpretations. One that I will call a reductionist one. So reductionist because there is no reference to anything abstract ascribed to the language on that interpretation. And another interpretation that is non-reductionist for obvious reasons. According to that interpretation, there is reference to, to abstract objects. Uh, and then the three key steps uh, are the, uh, the last ones. Um, so I'm going to argue that for a couple of reasons, the non-reductionist interpretation is to be preferred if it's available. And then beyond that, that it is in fact available, provided you use a certain kind of meta-language. And then lastly, uh, this point about the reference being metaphysically lightweight. Uh, that also corresponds to the... Uh, sections of the paper, uh, incidentally. Um, this is well-traveled territory. Uh, so uh, the Neophrygian project, uh, which many of you uh, are aware of, uh, also uh, has a lot to say about many of these uh, issues. Uh, I'm not going to engage in any kind of commentary or, or, or dispute with, with that approach in my talk. But let me just flag a couple of things then, and these are items that we could come back to in the discussion if people are interested. So I'll attempt to avoid some features of the Neophagian project that I and a lot of other people take to be problematic. The syntactic priority thesis, certain kind of deflationism about reference that comes up in, in some of their work, and this idea of recarving of content. I'm going to try to make do without any of these problematic notions, or notions I take to be problematic. Uh, instead, there are some other features uh, of, of my account which are relatively distinctive. So I make a big point of, uh, of this idea that the reference are metaphysically lightweight. 
And I take that more seriously than, than the neophagines, I think. And they're more lightweight, according to me, than, uh, than according to them. Uh, and uh, another point that I may get to, but also may not, is that uh, only certain kinds of abstraction principles turn out to be uh, obviously acceptable on, on my account. Uh, and these are the ones I call predicative. I would be happy to get back to that in discussion, but let me not dwell on that uh, uh, at this point and, and rather get going on. Um, on the first of these five points that I, I mentioned to you. So, uh, good. Um, so using the language just as if we are referring to, uh, to letters. Uh, so I'm gonna, we're gonna have to make a decision about how to describe the uh, linguistic data for which we will later go and look for a semantic interpretation. And my choice here will be to, to go for quite a, a high level description of the, uh, the data. So I'll help myself to all kinds of relatively complicated notions, uh, psychological dispositions, I'll talk about languages, uh, and so on. What I'm not going to help myself to is anything that uh, begs the question that I'm, I'm interested in, namely whether or not there is reference to, to abstract objects. So uh, I will look then at, uh, at this base language. Uh, uh, I'm going to call that L0. Uh, uh, and this is going to be the language I alluded to already, in which the, the community speaks about ordinary physical objects, including inscriptions. Uh, I'm going to take that, simplifying enormously, uh, to be just a first-order language with identity. Uh, and as I already mentioned, I'm going to uh, uh, assume that there is a semantic interpretation, a referential interpretation of that language, that the parties agree on. Right? So no disagreement concerning the basic language and reference to, uh, to physical objects. Uh, I'm going to call that interpretation I and its domain D0 uh, uh, corresponding to uh, the name of the language. Uh, the extended language, uh, L1, is an extension of, uh, of the base language. Uh, I'm going to take this to be a two-sorted first-order language. Uh, there are two logical sorts in this language. Right? So two kinds, two sets of variables, two sets of, of, of referring terms, terms, two sets of predicates. Uh, uh, first, there is a basic sort, or what I sometimes call the, the zero sort. Uh, this part of the, the extended language is exactly identical with the uh, base language. Right? So uh, this is just a sort in which the, the speakers can talk about ordinary objects. But then, in addition to that sort, there is an extended sort, or a one sort, uh, that consists of special vocabulary for talking about letters, i.e. abstract objects. Uh, so terms, predicates that are referred, uh, reserved for these uh, letters. Uh, and specifically, there will be an identity predicate uh, belonging to the one sort or the extended sort that can be meaningfully flanked only by uh, terms of the extended language, uh, that is uh, uh, letter terms. Uh, uh, and then finally, there's going to be an operator uh, that applies to any term of the basic language and yields a term of the extended language. So you could think of that as, uh, as the operator, the letter of, the letter of such and such an, an inscription. Now, uh, why do we choose to, to let this language be a two-sorted language? That's got to do with uh, the uh, uh, so-called Julius Caesar problem. So problems about identity uh, statements involving terms from, uh, from different sorts in two different speaking. And that's quite difficult, introduces a lot of difficult issues, which are not that relevant to, uh, to what I will be interested in. So in order to set all of those issues aside for another day, not to solve them in any way, uh, we're really just postponing the problem. But to, to, to set these issues aside, it's useful to adopt this two-sorted language where the Caesar problem doesn't even arise. It cannot even be formulated. So I had hoped there would be a flip chart where I could, could uh, explain to you exactly what I mean, but I hope that's clear enough. Uh, all right, so those are the languages. Um, 
I may refer to, to yet another language that results, which I call L2, and results from merging the two swords of, of uh, uh, L1. But don't be distracted by that at this point. It may not arise at all. Um, now, uh, on to how these languages are used. And my target, of course, is the idea that uh, the extended language L1 is used precisely as if it's concerned with abstract letters. So in particular, I need the idea that uh, one could say this language, that uh, this letter is identical to uh, that letter, pointing at two inscriptions. And that that is to be treated as correct, just in case these two inscriptions are equivalent in a certain sense. Right? So they count by community standards as inscriptions of one and the same letter. Uh, so to make that clear, we need a relation uh, uh, tilde, which will be this, this standard for when two inscriptions count as inscriptions of the same letter. Uh, it's important not to be confused about this. So for tilde to hold between two, or for this relation to hold between two uh, inscriptions, there needn't actually be a letter type that they are both inscriptions of. Uh, what matters is that they are counted by community standards as inscriptions of one and the same letter. Right? And this is, I'm idealizing a bit in, in describing to, to the community uh, a grasp of, of this kind of relation, but the relation in and of itself should not be problematic. And indeed, that kind of relation uh, is implemented in simple physical devices uh, like scanners that recognize uh, uh, physical inscriptions and classify them uh, in accordance with roughly that kind of equivalent. So which letter is that an inscription of? Uh, this uh, relation will be symmetric and transitive. Uh, let me explain to you why, why symmetric and transitivity uh, goes in a similar way. Uh, if two inscriptions, A and B, count as inscriptions of one and the same letter, then surely B and A will count as inscriptions of one and the same letter as well. So symmetry is a natural requirement. Uh, likewise, transitivity. Uh, reflexivity, however, uh, is something I do not want to, to require. Since uh, take some object that isn't uh, an inscription, this pen. Uh, I don't want that pen to be equivalent with itself. Uh, because that would mean that it's treated as, as an inscription of the same letter as itself, but it's not really treated. It's not an inscription at all. So for that reason, I don't want reflexivity. So that's a relation. And then the language is used in accordance with a set of rules that are very carefully described. Uh, and here are the rules. And um, this is where things get stated in the paper in, in quite a mathematical way. But really, the idea is very, very simple. So the first idea is that, look, the extended language extends the base language, which has an interpretation. So surely the uh, sortability conditions governing the extended language have got to respect the interpretation of, of that sublanguage that does have an interpretation. Right? So for that reason, we want uh, a formula phi of the uh, uh, base language to be assertable of some objects, just in case it's, uh, it's indeed true of those objects according to the agreed interpretation. But more interestingly, uh, you have clauses governing the, uh, the letter vocabulary of the extended language. So this is where we get to the, uh, the fact that uh, the extended language is used just as if it's talking about uh, uh, letters. Uh, so for instance, it's regarded as correct to assert the following. Now, this letter pointing at one inscription is identical with that letter pointing at another inscription, just in case those two inscriptions are equivalent in the way I've described. Right? So this means that they, they use, they classify uh, things just as if they were talking about uh, letters. 
Right? So they, they, they regard it as correct to say that this letter is identical with that letter, just in case the, the two inscriptions in questions uh, count by community standards as inscriptions of one and the same letter. Uh, let me give just one example of a predic predication and how that is handled. So uh, one of the predicates of the extended language may, for instance, be the predicate uh, for being a vowel. Okay? And then the community regards it as correct to say that uh, uh, this letter pointing at a particular inscription, this letter is a vowel. And that's regarded as correct just in case the inscription, A in this case, that they're pointing at, is a vowel inscription. And similar accounts of other predicates of the extended language. And here it's going to be very important that uh, the uh, equivalence in question uh, should be uh, uh, a so-called congruence for each of the uh, uh, the interpretations of the, the predicates. In other words, uh, if you say of one inscription that that's a letter, uh, then you should say of any equivalent inscription that it too is a letter. Otherwise, you were not talking as if about letters. Right? So uh, for that reason, one, one needs to insist on, on this uh, congruence uh, claim. Uh, so my claim then is that if used in that way, uh, the language is used precisely as if you're, you're talking about and referring to uh, abstract letters. But uh, remember, uh, all of this is at the level of uh, use facts and, and claims about how, uh, which, which sentences the community regards as correctly assertable in which kinds of situations. All right. Um, let me now go on to the next point and, and describe to you the two semantic interpretations that are available uh, for this extended language. So uh, assume that the language is used just in the way that I have described. Right, so it's used in accordance with all these uh, assertability conditions. What's the best semantic interpretation of the language in that case? And here are the two considerations that pull in in opposite direction. So one may on the one hand, ah, here comes the flip charge, fantastic. One may on the one hand uh, say that, look, the assortability conditions mention only concrete objects, specifically inscriptions. So based on these use facts, one couldn't possibly ascribe to the language any kind of reference to abstract objects since that would be too big a leap uh, or too big a jump beyond uh, the facts about how the language is, is used. So that would motivate some sort of uh, semantic interpretation according to which there is no reference to, uh, to anything abstract. Should be uh, readable when I, I, I come to, to need that. Um, then on the other hand, uh, you may say that, look, the language is used precisely as if uh, people are referring to abstract letters. So wouldn't it be nice to take this at face value? That would be a natural thing to do. Face value interpretations are often to be preferred. And that would motivate some, uh, some non-reductionist semantic interpretation according to which there genuinely is reference to abstract letters. So those are the two considerations, and uh, we can describe these two interpretations quite, quite easily. Uh, so first, the reductionist interpretation. This is simply read off directly from the assertability conditions that I laid out for you. So uh, when talking about the assertability conditions, uh, we talked about uh, letter terms being associated with, uh, with inscriptions, right? So I said, that uh, letter and pointed at a particular inscription. So that term was associated with a particular inscription. And according to the reductionist interpretation, that inscription is simply the referent of that term in that case. Right? So just read the referent of uh, the, uh, the way in which the language is used. Nothing very complicated. Uh, a letter predicate, I talked about the uh, conditions governing assertability of, uh, of predications. 
just read off the truth conditions for predicates directly from those sortability conditions, and you get the way the uh, reductionist wants to interpret predicates. And then the obvious clauses for connectives and quantifiers. Uh, next, the non-reductionist interpretation. This is the interpretation that says that there really is reference to uh, abstract letters. So here we need to talk about the relation between an inscription and the letter that it is an inscription of. So we need an abstraction operation, which I'm going to, to indicate by means of a bar, uh, that sends an inscription to its abstract letter type. And uh, this operation is governed by uh, a conditional abstraction principle, conditional upon the, uh, the objects A and B that you want to abstract on actually being inscri uh, inscriptions, right? Remember the pen, the pen isn't an inscription, so you don't want to, uh, to talk about the, the letter type of the pen, that, uh, that's bad. So what you do is just to say that assuming A is an uh, inscription at all, uh, so it's equivalent to itself, and likewise of B, then A and B are inscriptions of the same letter, just in case they are equivalent. Simple abstraction principle. Uh, and then according to the non-reductionist, uh, when a letter term is associated with a particular inscription, then its referent is not that inscription as the reductionist would have it, but rather the letter that that inscription is an inscription of. And there's a domain of letters, which is simply derived by abstracting on the domain D0 of the base language. Right? So you look at all the inscriptions that you have and the letters that are inscribed by those inscriptions and call that domain D1. Finally, there is a clause concerning uh, uh, predicates and how they are handled. But think here just of the simple case uh, that I mentioned already concerning the, the predicate is a vowel. So the predicate is a vowel uh, construed now as a letter predicate was correctly assertable of an inscription, just in case that was a vowel inscription. But now we want, or the non-reductionist rather, wants uh, a truth condition for this predicate as a vowel that can be applied to letters, not inscriptions. But look, that's easy. Uh, you just let that truth condition now apply to, um, to a letter, just in case the suitability condition applies to the associated inscription. And all of that is well uh, defined, uh, you will notice, uh, because of the fact that uh, this equivalence relation is a congruence with respect to, uh, to the suitability condition. Uh, so, uh, but keep in mind just a simple case here of, uh, of, of the predicate uh, is a vowel. All right, so that wraps up uh, stage two and, and the description of these two uh, semantic interpretations. Let's look, look now at the question of uh, which of these interpretations is to be preferred. So you've got the language used in a particular way. You've got two candidate semantic interpretations. Which is a better one? Now? And uh, a number of co considerations come into uh, to play here. And one, obviously, is uh, uh, the principle of uh, charity. Uh, but charity can't actually do any work in distinguishing between these two uh, interpretations uh, because they, they are both designed so as to, uh, to respect the assertability conditions uh, governing the language. Right? So when uh, a sentence is regarded as correctly assertable, it's true on both of those interpretations by construction. So charity isn't going to do the job. We need some other considerations to uh, uh, help us uh, select uh, one of these interpretations as the, uh, the better one. Uh, now, one can say what I just said in slightly more, uh, a slightly more precise manner. Uh, so you could look at the two interpretations and you could uh, 
prove that they are actually equivalent uh, modulo the two bridge principles that I've set out on, on previous slides. Uh, so you could actually make what I, I claimed fully precise if you wanted to. Uh, uh, but let me, instead of, of, of saying too much about that, just say a bit about the philosophical significance of, of that result. Uh, so one result is that the, uh, the two interpretations really agree on, on which context it is correct to, uh, or it is true even, to, uh, to assert a sentence in. Uh, and, and the disagreement comes up uh, rather on, on the issue of uh, where to draw the boundary between semantics and, and everything else. Uh, so this is where it's very convenient that the flip chart arrived since I wanted to, uh, to uh, draw a simple uh, drawing at this point. So, um, uh, According to the, here's a letter to say, and according to the non-reductionist interpretation, this refers to uh, something abstract. So that gives you a semantic interpretation which is very, very simple, but ontologically somewhat more costly. Right? Since you now invoke abstract objects. Uh, according to the reductionist interpretation, uh, it refers to something concrete, uh, namely an inscription. But the resulting semantic theory is more complex, since specifically the identity predicate uh, flanking, direct, uh, uh, flanking letter terms uh, is not actually treated as an identity predicate at all. That is by the reductionist regarded as true of two, uh, two inscriptions, just in case they're equivalent, uh, not in case there is some, uh, some identity claim. So on, on that kind of semantics, you have a more complicated, but less ontologically costly semantics. And both semantic theories uh, yield uh, the same claims about uh, which situations it's, it's true to, to resource sentences in, uh, but they do so in, in their separate ways. So look at things from the reductionist's point of view, uh, for instance. So the reductionist will say to the non-reductionist that, look, you invoke these complicated semantic values uh, uh, that are abstract, and then to go from your truth condition to uh, something that's closer to the use fact, <coughs> we need these Bridge principles. So wouldn't it be nice to, to just have a semantic interpretation that's built directly on the use facts? And then the non-reductionist will say to the, the reductionist that, no, it's really you who's making some, some mistake here. Since uh, you reductionist are conflating semantic considerations and metaphysical considerations. So look, for instance, at a simple identity claim. This one, say, uh, so this uh, letter pointing at uh, an inscription and that letter pointing at another one, that's identical according to the reduction, uh, that's true according to the reductionist, just in case the two inscriptions are equivalent. But the non-reductionist will say that, look, this is confusing the, uh, or conflating or running together the, the semantic uh, principle that an identity statement is true just in case the two reference are identical with the metaphysical principle that two uh, letters are identical just in case the associated inscriptions are equivalent. Right? So there's a disagreement between them about uh, what to include in your semantic account and what not to include. So the uh, non-reductionist goes with a simple account and regards all the, uh, the uh, concrete goings on as Facts that somehow make it the case that that is the right interpretation. Whereas the uh, reductionist says that, no, let's just go for those facts as now having semantic significance. So the language really just is referring to, uh, to inscriptions. All right. Um, so two, um, <clears throat> two uh, arguments now to the effect that the non-reductionist interpretation is the, uh, the better one. Uh, so the first argument is from the principle of uh, compositionality. 
Right? So according to this principle, uh, the semantic value of the complex expression should be functionally determined uh, by the semantic values of the components and the way they are composed. So simple example of that, uh, the semantic value of the sentence John runs. Uh, you get that semantic value, presumably just a truth value, by looking at the semantic value of the predicate, which is typically taken to be a function, and the semantic value of the uh, subject uh, expression, which is whoever the term, the name John, refers to. Well, that's a simple example of how compositionality works. And this is widely assumed uh, as something that a language ought to obey, uh, at least in ordinary cases like, like what we're concerned with. So, are the two interpretations that I've laid out compositional? That may be one way of, of helping us choose which is a better one. Uh, in fact, both are, but it turns out that the reductionist interpretation uh, is very, very fragile in that regard. So if you add some other resources to the language, then the reductionist interpretation is no longer compositional and can't even be made compositional. And here's a very simple example of that phenomenon. So look at the letters in the box. And remember, letters uh, I used to, to, uh, to refer to the letter times. Uh, so is it the case that most letters in the box are vowels? Well, there are three letters in the box, A, B, and C. Okay. Uh, and only two of, uh, only one of those three letters is a vowel, namely A. So this ought to come out false. But according to the reductionist, uh, the domain in question consists of inscriptions. Everything takes place at the level of, of inscriptions. So when the reductionist evaluates this uh, claim in the standard way that I set, down, set out at the bottom of the slide here, uh, he's going to look at uh, whether or not it is the case that most inscriptions are vowels. But look, uh, there are three out of five inscriptions that are vowel inscriptions, namely the three inscriptions of, of A. So the, on the reductionist interpretation, in other words, this sentence will come out true, but it ought to come out false. So to get the right result, one somehow needs to, uh, to invoke a coarse graining of, of the domain. And not any old coarse graining. You need to coarse grain exactly in accordance with, uh, with the equivalence relation in question. Right? So you need to count letters as opposed to inscriptions. Uh, so in this case, the non-reductionist interpretation gets it right uh, very, very nicely and, 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 and naturally, uh, but the reductionist account cannot even get it right. Second argument for the uh, non-reductionist interpretation being, being the better one. Uh, so um, one constraint it is natural to impose on the choice of, of a semantic interpretation is that the interpretation shouldn't ascribe to, to speakers anything that can't, they can't uh, plausibly be taken to, uh, to have grasped. So uh, the truth condition that you assign to a sentence should be something that the, can be adequately grasped by the speakers who understand that sentence. So consider snow is white, that sentence, the truth condition uh, talks about snow, white, and involves uh, the notion of predication, all of which resources are plausibly said to be adequately grasped by speakers who want to understand that sentence. So all fine and well. But there are other cases, uh, and let me describe one, where this uh, constraint has bite. So consider another linguistic extension, uh, a little bit parallel to the one uh, with which I began. Uh, so there's a base language, which is a simple feature-placing language. So language in which you can say uh, wet here, cold air, and so on. Uh, and then there's an extended language that adds vocabulary suitable for talking about physical bodies. Uh, and then in particular, it's going to be regarded as correct to assert this body uh, uh, pointing at some, some stuff is identical with that body, again, pointing at some other stuff, just in case the two uh, 
pieces of matter that you have picked out uh, are related to one another in some appropriate way. I'm going to call that appropriate way just to be C-related for uh, continuously related somehow. But uh, of course, articulating exactly this kind of relation that uh, pieces of matter have to stand in in order to belong to the same body is very, very tricky. But call whatever relation uh, that is C, uh, and then the uh, assertability condition governing identity statements uh, concerning physical bodies would be the one I put down here. Uh, but of course, speakers can be able to uh, tell whether two pieces of matter stand in that kind of relation without having any explicit understanding of the relation. The relation is a very complicated one. Uh, we may not even be able to articulate it uh, uh, We sophisticated philosophers. Uh, but uh, there is a practical ability to tell, at least in most cases, whether or not uh, pieces of matter stand in that relation. Right, so in this case, it would be badly wrong to treat that assertability condition as now a truth condition. And it would be wrong because it would run against this uh, cognitive constraint on interpretations. But you would then be ascribing to speakers some understanding of or grasp of the relation C, which they can't plausibly be said to, to have a grasp of or a command of. Right? So in this case, the assertability condition would be clearly unacceptable as a truth condition. And the truth condition ought to be the simple intuitive one. Namely that uh, this body is identical with that body is true just in case the two reference of those two demonstratives are indeed identical. So there's something similar in my example, uh, I believe. So I think it would be implausible to ascribe to the speakers in my example a grasp of this equivalence relation uh, tilde that holds between uh, inscriptions when they are regarded as inscriptions of one and the same latter. Uh, now, to some extent, my, my example is a constructed one, so I could just stipulate that uh, speakers don't have, have this adequate grasp. But I think it's highly plausible that ordinary speakers don't have a grasp of, of the relation in which inscriptions have to stand in order to count by our ordinary standards, as inscriptions of one and the same letter. So I think, again, the cognitive constraint uh, counts against the uh, uh, reductionist interpretation at that point. All right, so we're, we're entering the, uh, the end game. Uh, it would be preferable, I've argued, to adopt the non-reductionist interpretation if it is available. Now I'll tell you a bit about why I think it is available. Um, and this will be an argument whose upshot is that uh, use facts are in a certain sense prior to semantic theorizing. So first you go ahead and start using a language and you assess whether or not that use is legitimate or not, uh, or successful or not. And only later do you ask semantic questions about how the language is to be interpreted. So consider a simple community of speakers uh, who speak the base language and would like to uh, extend their linguistic practice and start using the, the extended language. So for instance, uh, they'd like to be able to, uh, to look at the box full of inscriptions that I, I talked about uh, a couple of minutes ago and ask, is it the case that most letters there are vowels? Instead of using complicated circumlocutions, like, is it the case that counting only up to equivalence, most inscriptions are uh, vowel inscriptions? Uh, right, that's all they want. They want to be able to speak this language, to, uh, to, to be able to communicate uh, more naturally and smoothly. But look. Each sentence has been assigned in a sortability condition, which is clearly expressed uh, in some unproblematic language, namely the base language that all parties agreed on. Uh, the resulting use of the language is, from a logical point of view, totally impeccable. No logical problem about any of this. 
That's another thing that's guaranteed by the proposition that I, I had up on the board a little while ago. Uh, and also speakers impose no constraints on how this extended language is to be uh, interpreted. Right? They really just want to be able to use it. So it's not as if they, they say that, oh, furthermore, we want letters to be physical or something that could be experimentally detected or anything like that. They really just want to be able to use the extended language. But given that the language is for all intents and purposes in good shape, I submit that it's, it's perfectly legitimate for them to expand their language in this way. Then centuries go by, the simple community gradually becomes more sophisticated. And they develop an interest in theoretical semantics. And they ask the question, look, look at the language L1 that we adopted a few centuries ago. How is that best interpreted? Which semantic interpretation is the, uh, the preferable one for that language? But they will be using a language which has these resources uh, as if to uh, uh, refer to, uh, to letters uh, and presumably other resources that they have added in the intervening centuries. So the meta language that they will use to uh, carry out that investigation of how their earlier language was to be interpreted, that will be an extension of the, uh, the language L1. So in that meta language, of course I can describe the uh, non-reductionist interpretation. Right, they have the resources to, uh, to talk about uh, letters, or at least they have a language that behaves just in, in that way. So uh, they will say, yes, that interpretation is indeed available to us. So the phenomenon one here is one of expanding a language, then looking back at what you have done, and then seeing that with the resources that I, I gained by expanding in that way, I can now give a semantic account of, of my language. So the language is, in a sense, stable under semantic reflection. Right? So you go, from a, you go from your basic language, L0, to your extended language, and maybe even beyond, and you look at what you have done, you scrutinize yourself, and you find that everything is in fine order. You can now give a semantic interpretation of your extended language. It's stable under semantic reflection in that sense. So the non-reductionist interpretation will certainly be available. Uh, and as I argued a couple of minutes ago, it is to be preferred if available. So for that reason, I conclude it would be preferable to, uh, to uh, interpret uh, the language as genuinely referring to uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to letters and, uh, and, in that way, abstract objects. Uh, there are objections here, but uh, let me skip those now and, uh, and, and rather end with a couple of considerations about how these objects are metaphysically lightweight. Uh, I'll make this relatively short to be able to finish in, in just a little over 50 minutes or so. Um, so... Uh, I've described the expansion of the language. And when you expand in that way, you're going to say things like, there are matters. Some of them are vowels. Uh, and you're going to give a semantic interpretation on which uh, that claim that there are vowels, say, really refers to uh, or quantifies over abstract objects. And you're going to say that that, that claim is true, right? So you're going to say, and all of this in a permissible way, so I've argued, that there are abstract objects. So the objection here will be that, look, didn't that come a bit too, too quickly? Uh, how did we somehow, by doing, just designing this language in, in, in that way and, and starting to uh, use it in that way, how did we bring it about that, uh, that abstract objects entered our discourse? Isn't that too quick? Uh, and here, I think the, the better response is that uh, it is, in a sense, objects for cheap. But that is only to be expected because these objects are metaphysically lightweight. 
right? They don't make a big demand on, on reality for their existence. Uh, I have some, some stuff about how the Neophragians attempt to cash out ideas of that sort. I'm going to skip that now and rather end with uh, my own proposal for how to cash out those sorts of, of ideas. So my view clearly has a reductionist aspect in the sense that we really just started using a language whose assertability conditions were described in, in, uh, in a language talking just about concrete objects and somehow brought it about that uh, abstract objects entered our uh, discourse. Uh, so there's some sort of reductionism going on here. But look at the kinds of reductionism that, that have been on the market and, and been defended by various people. So you could place the reductionism at the syntactic level and say that, look, it's the, the logical form of the uh, extended language, uh, which is deceptive somehow. So it looks like the extended language is referring to uh, to abstract letters, but really it isn't. Uh, that's not my reductionism. That's clear. The language L1 is exactly, functions exactly the way it, it appears to function. Uh, other reductionists place a reductionism at the semantic level in the form of, of adopting the semantic interpretation that I've called the reductionist interpretation. Right, so the interpretation on which uh, all you're referring to and quantifying over are concrete objects, after all. Uh, again, that is not my, my kind of reductionism. So on my view, the syntax and semantics of the extended language are precisely as they appear to be. Rather, what's going on here is that the relation of reference is not a metaphysically primitive relation. When a term is referring to some, some object, uh, that's, that's not a primitive feature of the world, but it's a relation that somehow obtains in virtue of, of other and more basic facts. And what I have attempted to do is to give a reductionist account of that phenomenon. So uh, look at the relation between a term and its abstract referent. What makes it the case that that relation obtains? And I have argued that the more basic facts in virtue of which that relation does obtain, those basic facts need not involve abstract objects. So that's where the reductionism is located. Uh, if you wish, it's located at a, at a uh, metasemantic level. And um, let me end with an example that it may be useful to, uh, to have in mind here of of another kind of a reduction of, of a reference relation where one of the uh, relata of that relation drops out. So look at the relation that obtains between me uh, when I own a particular bank account, number so and so. Right? I take it that is a perfectly true claim that I own that bank account. Uh, the syntax of that claim is what it appears to be. Uh, it is a two-place relation. Uh, the semantics of it is what it appears to be. Uh, OL refers to me, uh, bank account number so-and-so refers to my bank account. And indeed, the relation of ownership obtains between these two uh, objects. But this ownership relations are not primitive features of reality. They obtain in virtue of other more basic facts. Right? So what are the more basic facts in virtue of which I own that bank account? Well, there's going to be some long and complicated story here involving sociological facts, legal facts, who knows what exactly. Uh, Locke's account of ownership would be, uh, would be one attempt to, to cash out what you, uh, you put at the bottom level. Uh, but some account or, or other. But these more basic facts, in virtue of which I own that bank account, they need not and presumably do not mention or in any other obvious way involve the bank account. Right? These are just going to be uh, facts relating a particular number uh, to me and a lot of 
sociological and, 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 and legal facts, which somehow bring it about that the relation obtains and that the second relata exists. So in some sense, that second relatum is uh, constituted out of these more basic facts. And I propose that there is something similar going on here now in the case of reference here. So the letter term genuinely refers to the abstract referent. But of course that isn't a primitive relation or primitive feature of reality. It's a relation that um, obtains in virtue of certain more basic facts. And these more basic facts are all the use facts that I have talked about involving, of course, concrete inscriptions. So um, let me just end there, I think. And, and then uh, this will prompt objections, but that should lend, it, uh, lend themselves to a good discussion. So uh, let me wrap up there.